Welcome to Destiny Spirit Church. This week's message is by our associate pastor, Tracy Murray. Okay, if you guys would turn into your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, please. Now, God has us in this place where He's really starting to speak to us about uh, healing, health, wholeness, all that going together. But it more than just the simple act of going and laying your hands on someone, which we believe in most definitely, and we believe that God operates that way, absolutely. But even going in a lot deeper to the deep, to the deep roots of, of these matters, of why people are experiencing uh, the things that they're experiencing in their lives. Uh, the title of my message tonight is Two Inheritances. Everybody at First Peter chapter 1, let's look at verse 17. We'll be reading 17 through 19. It says, If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And in that, I want, you, I want everybody to kind of focus in on that middle verse, verse 18. It says, You were redeemed from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Tonight I want to talk to you about a subject that is not well understood. And to some it's even a little bit controversial. Uh, as spirit-filled believers, we're off, we often focus in on our inheritance that we have through Christ. And we need to. It's very important because we do have an inheritance that we need to know about through Christ. But uh, he re- it says in the Word that He redeemed us from our old ways. But if He, being God, has given us a new inheritance through His Son, Jesus, then that means there must have been an old inheritance given to us by someone else. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Um, you see, as being partakers in God's kingdom uh, by accepting Christ into our hearts, we must see accurately... We must acknowledge that we are the recipients of actually two inheritances. The first inheritance is an inheritance that nobody wants, unfortunately. But guess what? You weren't asked if you wanted it or not. It was just there. It was dumped on you, wanted or not, it's yours. It's not fair. It's not the way that we want things to be. But the inheritance that I'm talking about, it's not really much of an inheritance. It's almost like having a, what, you have, what you think is a rich family member pass away and you think he's going to leave you a lot of money, but he leaves you a lot of debt instead. And that's the inheritance that we receive. It is the inheritance of sin and sin nature. And it has passed through the bloodlines all the way down from one generation to the next, going back all the way to the beginning. And where this inheritance started was with an, with an individual, a being, and his name was Satan. Now, the thing that I find interesting, that one of the, the uh, meanings for the name Satan is actually little God. Small God, demigod, little God. But through falling into temptation, uh, in questioning God's word, not in so much what God had said, but what he actually meant caused our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, to fall. And he fell into sin. Adam sinned. So you have this being that tempts Adam and Eve, 
He tricks them into questioning God's word. They sin, and it starts there, all the way back in Genesis. And it passes to every generation through blood, right down to each one of us sitting in this room tonight. But thankfully, and praise to God, we are also partakers of another inheritance, if we choose to be. This inheritance wipes the other inheritance out completely. It supersedes it completely. And just as the first inheritance started with a being called Little God, this one starts with an individual named Jehovah. Jehovah, one of the meanings of Jehovah is God eternal. Or God self-existent is another term for Jehovah. In other words, God of all and all, the one true God. So we have one inheritance starting with little God. We have the next inheritance starting with God of all. And through the complete and total manifestation of God's word and the overcoming of temptation, we have through our older brother, the second Adam, Jesus, we have a greater bloodline to a greater inheritance. And I love the way God does things. Do you see the parallel there? I love what he does. Satan came in and he tempted Adam and Eve to sin concerning the word of God. God comes in and he supersedes that with the word made manifest in Jesus. So where man fell because of his temptation and his lack of understanding of the word, he let the devil trip him up. God comes in and he defeats the devil with that very same thing, the word. I love God. I love the way he does things. As the inheritance that we had, that first inheritance of sin and sin nature is passed down through the blood, God chose to wipe it away with his blood. Another parallel that I find very interesting. And so we see right away in Genesis that when there was sin and there was an offense, then there was a punishment. There was a curse. With our forefather's sin, there came a curse on man, woman, and even the earth. Because if you remember back in Genesis, God said he would curse the man and make him toil, sweat of the brow, and with the woman that she'd have, she'd bring forth child and much labor, much pain. And then he said he would curse the ground. Remember that? So all was cursed. All of creation was cursed because of that. The controversy starts coming in, even between God's people at this point. Because you see, some believe that when you start tossing around like, you know, words like curse, that you're just some spiritualistic whack job out there who has no touch, no grip on reality. But the truth is, it's not whack. It's the word. That's my new saying. It's not whack. It's the word. <laughs> And I understand that because, you know, we all run into some people that are super spiritual and you can't relate to them because they're so far out there. You know, God's not all about that. God wants us to be very spiritual because we are spiritual beings, absolutely. But when you lose the ability to appeal to your fellow man, you're not much used to him. So I want you to find balance in that. You know, we're not some, you know, goofy group of people that are super spiritual, crazy people that no one can relate to because I, I know those people. And you know what? They don't reach anybody. They turn people off. We don't need to be that way. We need to be real with people. But this stuff, when you start talking about curses, um, 
it, it throws people off sometimes because they start thinking that you're just some kind of superstitious nut or something. And I remember uh, an incident that I went through several years back, many years ago, actually. Uh, I had come to the point where um, I'd been spirit-filled for a couple of years, and God was really starting to sh- open up His Word to me, and I was starting to get a real understanding of being blessed and being cursed and the things that we do, the things that are passed on, even by the words of our own mouth. And I was really excited about it because this was a very new thing to me. It may be something kind of new to some of you. Others, you may be very familiar with it. But um, I remember I was going to a pretty large church, and I was part of a praise and worship team, and we were at practice one night. And um, and uh, we were kind of in a resting point. We weren't doing anything. We were just kind of sitting around. And I was sitting behind the drums, just kind of relaxing. I was talking to our guys playing bass guitar for us and got to talking to him a little bit about all this stuff, about how, you know, we, we have curses that operate in our lives, but, you know, when we appropriate what Jesus did for us, you know, we have victory over it. And he goes, oh, I don't believe that for a second. And it kind of knocked me back. I'm just like, what? You know, here I was in this huge spirit-filled church. I thought, man, I'd get an amen from somebody from what I'm preaching, but this guy was in total opposition to what I was saying. I'm like, really? Why don't you believe in this stuff? And he said, well, you know, Jesus, he came and he died on the cross, correct? I said, absolutely. He said, when he died on the cross, he took all our sins. I said, absolutely. He said, then the battle's won. I said, well, yeah, I can agree with that technically, but we have to fight our own battles and get through that. And he's like, nope, it's all done. We don't have to do anything. And I thought, man, you're living in a fantasy world. And so I just kind of dropped the conversation because it was going downhill quick. And where I thought I was going to be in, in uh, you know, agreement, find somebody in agreement with, I found myself in a quite heated argument all of a sudden. And, you know, it just really began to ring through my spirit and my soul. And I thought, you know what this guy's saying? There are a lot of Christians out there that believe the same way. They think just because Jesus did come and die that it's all taken care of. But you know what? That's not the truth. It's not the truth until you appropriate it. It's the same way with blessing and cursing. The curses in your life are not automatically broken off. You must appropriate that. Because you see, salvation comes on several levels. And you have to appropriate it on all levels. Because the word says plainly that yes, Jesus did come and die for our sins so that we may be redeemed unto the Father and go to heaven when we die. But he also came and shed his blood that we might be healed. He also came to bring a new inheritance to us as well. But just as you were not saved until you appropriated it, you're not free from the curses until you appropriate it. You know, when, he, when that guy I was talking to said that, I just immediately God started taking me to different instances that I experienced in my own life and watched others go through in life. I remember a couple in my church, I grew up in a, in a Nazarene church in a youth group, excellent youth group. And uh, this, this, this couple, they were, they were like old enough to be my parents. They were very God-fearing, very wonderful people. And I knew their daughter quite well. She was a super girl. But you know what? She made a mistake and she got pregnant at 16. It broke their hearts. I think of the other people I knew that, that I grew up with who ended up as drug addicts. You know, it broke their parents' heart. Their parents were believers. And I kept thinking, so you think the battle's won? When you have all this going on, the battle, yes, Jesus did everything he, that needs to be done to give you the victory, but you've got to go out there and claim it for yourself. That's a roll-over-and-die mentality to say, I don't have to do anything. Another thing that struck me really funny about this guy I was in the argument with is I knew he was having a problem kicking smoking. He was addicted to nicotine, and he thought the battle was over. He was lying to himself. Because, you see, to believe that the battle's over also means that, well, hey, I don't have to appropriate salvation to my life. If Jesus came and died on the cross, then I'm saved. 
I don't have to accept it. I'm, I don't have to appropriate it. It's done. When you say it, that's about saying the same thing. And there is a thought and a belief pattern out there that says that. It's called ultimate reconciliation, and it's a heresy. You see, if you don't understand the depth of salvation that Jesus paid for on the cross for you and for, and for me, to just roll over and pull the covers over your head and ignore it and say, eh, you know, it's done, that's heresy. Because it's not until you appropriate it. So tonight we're going to appropriate some things that maybe we haven't. And we don't want to be guilty of heresy, do we? You see, we get so hung up on words sometimes. And, and I think that's just a Western mindset thing. Uh, you talk to others in other parts of the world, and it's really not an issue. They don't have a problem believing the word. Uh, I know you guys spent some time in Russia with people that had not been saved very long at all, and they knew the Bible more than, better than some people that had been in church their entire lives. I mean, people that in Russia, where it was like 20 below zero, they would walk two or three, five miles to go to church. You know, it's a Western thing, I think, that we get hung up on words. But it's so funny because, you know, I love listening to many teachers, and what got me excited in all this was listening to people like Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland, all the men that, that really emphasize the word and faith. And I love the way that they speak, especially Kenneth Copeland, because they just put it in, in plain, everyday, down-to-earth terms. You know, it's this simple. The way to, this, to define it is blessing is being empowered to succeed. That's what a blessing is. A curse is being empowered to fail. It's that simple. And another simplistic point of all this is that with sin comes a curse. Any sin that you are seeing operating in your life, any sin that you are guilty of, it came through way of a curse. And when you sin, you open yourself up for a curse. And it opens up your bloodline from you down for additional curses for them to reap in their lives. It is passed down the family line. Some examples that we see often, because Brenda and I have been uh, counseling for a long time now, <laughs> several years. And, uh, and, you know, we've, man, I think we've, we've heard just about everything you can hear. You can't shock me uh, in the counseling setting, anything you tell me. Uh, first off, you know, it's just God, it's just his heart operating through us. You know, we don't get shocked, you know, if we're, we, when we're counseling, we don't just, <gasps> you kidding, you did that? No. <laughs> we've heard a lot of stuff from a lot of different people and a lot of the things that we've come across and realized is that what people are facing are curses operating in their life some examples are alcoholism alcoholism is a curse uh, sexual abuse is very much a curse we see often time with those that we have counseled uh, in, that have been uh, victims of sexual abuse and the only thing that has shocked me about counseling folks who have experienced sexual abuse is not that they've been sexually abused, but the numbers that have been sexually abused. It never ceases to amaze me how many young women and young men have been abused, you know, in their childhood that way. And we see that pattern. Uh, they'll even even tell you in 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 secular uh, psychology and, and counseling that sexually abused people will almost always turn out to be sexual abusers. Why is that? Because it's a curse. It was a curse that maybe that individual was sexually abused by their father or an uncle or take your pick, a cousin. Curse came into that person and it was a horrible thing and they were traumatized through it as a child. They grew up, that curse passed to the next generation and they became the abuser. And they abused the next generation. And then that generation grows up 
and it abuses the next generation. It's a curse. It just, it just keeps rolling and keeps going over and over until it's broken. Divorce, I believe, is a curse. How many people I have seen who came from broken homes end up breaking homes? Cancer is definitely a curse. We see it quite often. Well, granddaddy had, can- had lung cancer, you know, and dad had lung cancer. You know, I guess I'm going to get lung cancer. You know, we've had people actually say that. It's like, well, no, we're going to break that curse off of you so you don't. Heart disease. Heart disease is a curse. We see it going from, fam- from family member to family member right down the line. So you're starting to see how these things are generational and how they're passed down and how they are part of that really nasty inheritance that we were given. You know, so often people will see the problems and they'll say, well, you know, he's just like his dad. You know, his dad had a problem gambling. He's gonna, he has a problem gambling. He's just like his dad. It's not because he chose to be like his dad. There's a curse in operation here. There's a curse in operation. And I just want to make it real clear because I don't want this to sound like I'm saying something I'm not. I just want to make it clear from the start. The fact that we are all born into corruption does not mean the inevitability of a sinful life. Okay, and I want that to sink in because I don't want that to be a crutch because it, it doesn't fly. It doesn't fly with me. It doesn't fly with God. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be sinful just because it was in the family, because it has come down the line. It simply means the potential or the tendency for weakness in a particular area. Um, I'll give you an example, like uh, alcoholism. We said that earlier. Um, How can I put this? The tendency to be addicted to alcohol uh, is the curse. Okay, the tendency to be addicted to alcohol is the curse. The individual making the choice on whether or not to start drinking alcoholic beverages in an irresponsible manner, that is the issue here. Because the curse is there's a tendency there. Because even science will tell you that there's something with people who are alcoholics. It's something in their chemical. It's something in their makeup. It's something in their DNA, in their genes. And I find that interesting because the Word says that curses pass through the blood, and that's where you find the DNA. That's where you find the genes. See, when, when a family is cursed, it is a corruption and a perversion of their chemical makeup. And as I said so many times before, I love science, I love God, because I do not think they contradict one another. I think they confirm. I think, it, I think science confirms God completely. Completely. Because, you see, you can have two people sitting side by side, and one could have a, a glass of wine with their meal and be fine and cut it off right there. I know many people that do drink a glass of wine with their meal because it's very medicinal, for one thing. It's very healthy to have a glass of wine. I don't particularly care for it. I don't have a taste for it. But there's also, you can have someone sitting right next to them who can't cut it off at one glass because there's that curse in operation. They can have a couple bottles of wine, but they can't cut it off after one. That's where the curse comes in. I want you to notice what I said before. I said it's the tendency, not necessarily the act. If the tendency is there, that's how you know the curse is in operation, not necessarily the act. Because we have counseled many people, it's like, well, you know, uh, uh, great-granddaddy, he wasn't an alcoholic, but grand, granddaddy, he was. And then my dad was an alcoholic, but, you know, I'm not. So the curse must be broken. 
Well, did you break it? No, I just don't see it in operation in my life. Well, guess what? It's still there. Because that person was just maybe strong enough to not give in to, get, to taking a drink. So they don't know if the tendency is there or not. They just never let themselves get to that point. Praise God. They were strong enough. But I also saw it where, but I don't get it. But now my son, Junior, he's an alcoholic. It's because the curse is still there. The tendency was there. And Junior couldn't fight it. The curse is still in operation. Just because it jumps a generation doesn't mean anything. It could still be there. That's why we like to look at things in generations. Like we go back in counseling. We go back as far as we can go. You know, as far as you know. You know, what did great granddaddy do? What did great great granddaddy do? You know, what, did, what are the stories? You know, what happened? So it's the tendency, not necessarily the act. Turn with me to Exodus 20. Wouldn't it be funny if God's word is true? Oh, that's right, it is, isn't it? I believe God knows what he's talking about. I believe he has something to say. And I believe that it would be best if we all started listening to what he has to say. Exodus 20, let's start in verse 4. Are we there? It says, You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Stop right there. Iniquity, the word iniquity, that's a terrible word. It just makes you feel dirty almost just saying it. Iniquity. By definition, this is what iniquity means. The heart tendency to rebel against God. Remember what I said before. If the curse is there, that means the tendency is there. Iniquity is the heart tendency to rebel against God. And in that, in that verse 5, it says that visiting the iniquity which is the heart tendency to rebel against God, of the fathers to the children on the third and fourth generation. So who issues this curse? God does. <gasps> you mean God would curse somebody? God is bound by His Word just as we are. He will not go against His own Word. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, he established right then, right there, there had to be sacrifice, there had to be the shedding of blood, and there had to be covering for sin. Because he brought the animal forth. He killed them, he drained their blood, and he used the skin coverings to cover Adam and Eve because they were no longer covered in his glory because they had sinned. God established right then and there that for this, there's that. For, the, for sin, there is a consequence. And when you get outside of the parameters of what God has set for us to operate in, you set yourself up for curse. So iniquity is the heart tendency to rebel against God. One generation's sin is the next generation's tendency to rebel. And when that generation rebels, it intensifies that sin that much more. If you stop and really think about it, I think you can really see what I'm talking about there. You know, let's just take, for example... Sexuality on television. You know, TV is still relatively a new 
thing when you look at the, the whole history of the world and time and everything. History uh, the history of television basically started with our grandparents. And, you know, I think back at the stuff that we even still see today through syndication and reruns that, that my, my parents grew up on when they were kids like I Love Lucy or Leave It to Beaver. You know, all in all, pretty wholesome shows. And, you know, I find it really funny because even with uh, I Love Lucy, which Michaela loves, absolutely loves I Love, love Lucy, um, you had a couple... I mean, the two actors, Lucy and Desi Arnaz, they were actually married in real life. But anytime they would show a scene, even in a bedroom, if you notice, the beds were separated, you know. And that's a little unreal, you know. But the thing is, is they wanted to portray decency, you know, and equality there in family life. And you never would see anything to that. You bring that up to the time when I was growing up, and things changed a little bit. You know, one thing that pops to my mind is that show, remember that show Three's Company? You know, I mean, that was pretty risque when you compare it to I Love Lucy, you know, or love American style, you know. It was stuff that was just, you know, saying little innuendos that weren't real appropriate. But, you know, as kids, you didn't get most of it. But as you grew up, you're like, oh, that's what they were talking about, you know. But you bring it up to today, what our kids are subjected to. You know, I remember one night I was watching a football game, and after the football game, this show was coming on. It was prime time. I tell you what, I couldn't get to the remote fast enough. I mean, it was stuff that you, in years past, might have seen in a rated R movie. It was on prime time television. No warning. No warning whatsoever. So, as you can see, when one, when one generation has a sin, that tendency passes to the next generation. And if that generation falls into it, it intensifies. If you can see what I mean. When I was praying about this, this is what I felt like God was saying to me. He said, one generation's vice is the next generation's way of life. And that's a strong statement because, you know, we all have our little vices that we think doesn't affect anybody, doesn't affect anyone. But, you know, if you don't get that stuff straightened out, you're causing more problems for just you. It goes to the next generation. And when that got into my heart that this generation's vice is the next generation's way of life, that's a scary thing. Because you start to wonder how much more can it degrade, how much more can it go down. And if you go to Europe and watch TV over there, you'll see just how much further it can go down because there's not much censorship over there. Pretty much anything goes in a lot of those countries. So we need to start looking at these things from God's point of view. In this day and age, especially in the Western world, we are very individualistic. Um, I think it's prevalent more so in the Western world than it is in other parts of the world because, you see, we have that attitude of, of, you know, we're, we're the survivor, you know, we can, we can make it on our own, you know. We call ourselves the United States of America, but I'm not so sure that that's the case anymore. But um, we're very individualistic. We can make our own choices, you know, we can be our own boss, we can be our own God in our eyes. Uh, many people are that way. It never ceases to amaze me. After every presidential term, you know, I'll talk to someone and their guy didn't win. I was like, well, he's not my president. I'm like, yeah, he is. You may not like him, you may not have voted for him, but he's your president. It's because they're an individual. They're like, I ain't answering to him. It's like, I don't care if your guy made it into the White House or not. He's your president. We have that individualistic, that lone ranger attitude. You know what? That's not how God looks at men. He does not look at one man at a time like we do in the Western world. And I'm not knocking our country. I love our country. Um, I pray for it. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm not a doomsdayer, but I have my concerns for it because I think it's uh, God's no longer the center of it. 
and our, I, my fear is that it, would, it is going to become the divided states of America, even more so than it has. But aside, aside from that, God looks at things differently. We have the attitude of it's my life, mine alone, I make the decisions, I'm, I'm in control. But that's not how God thinks. God thinks in terms of generations. God thinks in terms of families more so than individuals. Over and again in the Word, we'll see where God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. You know, he doesn't just say one person. What he's doing there, he's denoting generations. I am the God of this entire family for the three generations because it started with Abraham. You know, he didn't just say, you know, I'm, I'm the God of, of Abraham and left the others out because he didn't, he didn't see them as any different. He saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all the same because they all followed after him. Three generations of one family. He sees us as integral parts of a family that exists over generations. But the God of mercy is also the God of justice. You know, it's very common to feel like, well, that's not fair. You know, this just ain't fair. You know, why was I born with all this garbage in my life? It's just not right. Why do I have to pay for what someone else did? Heck, I don't even know great-granddaddy. You know, why do I have to deal with that? Why is that something I have to pay for? Will I not stand in judgment for God by myself someday? Yeah, you will. You will stand by yourself. But the thing is, this is how God has put it into operation. See, we, we complain from our point of view without considering the character and the nature of God. We must come to a place of surrender. And I mean, I know tonight, like as we were praising and worshiping Him, you know, I, I looked around, I saw many people had their hands up. That's a symbolic gesture of, I surrender to you. But it needs to be more than that. It needs to be our lifestyle. We need to have a lifestyle of surrender to Him. We need to surrender our own opinions and perspectives and be willing to see it from God's perspective. And I often think about that because we are. We're selfish. You know, we've all been there and thought, why me? You know, why, why am I dealing with this? What did I ever do? What about Jesus' point of view? You know, I think about that sometimes when I start getting where I feel sorry for myself. You want to talk about unfair? Jesus had the same things to deal with that you and I did because he had an earthly mother. And she had sin in her life that could have passed down to him, but, you know, through temptation, he overcame it. He did not succumb to the temptation like, like a lot of people would, like Adam and Eve did. He did not succumb. And he was tempted in every way that you and I can be tempted. And he did not fail. And yet, he was the one that hung on the cross. <laughs> so don't tell me life's unfair. Tell it to Jesus. Because I guarantee you, he's not going to sympathize with you a whole lot, you know. It's awesome. I think about uh, Kyle was sharing uh, with me last week, or was it the week before? I don't know. He had had this vision that God had given him about us being around the cross. And, and um, I think he posted it on a blog. Did you post it on your blog? What is that? How do they go to it? I want people to go read that. Um, well, what I saw is, um, like, if anybody, if you have seen, like, The Passion of the Christ or something, where they've got Jesus and he's, like, nailed, he's, like, laying on the cross from the right before the nailing, but it was, like, a giant mob of people. And it was, like, I'm, like, I'm thinking it was us as a church and, like, in general. And um, we were, like, all of us were sitting there and, like, nailing Jesus in and um, when he was uh, and we were all pulling on the ropes and stuff to raise the cross up 
and it was like he, um, it was like he he looked out like at everybody, each individually, but like all at the same time, and he said, you know, I'm doing this for you. Everything that I've done has been for you, and then like, like a drop of his blood like came out and like covered everybody, but the blood turned into like like a big like a white light, and it like covered us, and then we, all of us together. We all kneeled and said, you know, like you're a god, you're you're king, and like then like, he was like sitting in the clouds and he was, you know, like on the throne and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you sharing that because I didn't give him any warning about that. I just it just kind of clicked with me. But you know, from Jesus' point of view, he paid that price for us willingly, knowing he had done nothing wrong. So we need to come to that place where our perspective changes a little bit of, of coming from why me to okay. This is how it is. What do I do? Because you see, we've got to be real about this. If your perspective differs from God's perspective, then who's wrong? We are. And we have to change. Let's change our point of view and see what God has to say. In Exodus 34, you don't have to turn there, in in, uh, verses 6 and 7, it says, "The The Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. The truth that we must latch on to is this. God is good. He's merciful. And he is just. And what that means to say that he is just is that he stands in great anticipation, ready and willing to forgive when his conditions are met. We don't get to call the shots. We don't get to make the rules. Sorry, but when it comes right down to it, is little bitty created you versus almighty God who's always been there self-existent? Who wins? Who gets to call the shots? He does because, you see, it's on his terms. And the thing is, is he's loving and he's merciful. He is not a hard taskmaster. So he gets to call the shots. That's his prerogative. And when we come to him and we're ready and we're willing to forgive those and we're willing to be forgiven and those conditions are met, his love prevails and comes through. Otherwise, his justice, which is also so basic to his nature, prevails and the iniquity of the fathers passes down to the children. As I said before, he's bound to his own word. He cannot lie. He set these things in, in, in motion years and years and years ago. He cannot change from it. God cannot lie. As Donna said many times before, if God lied, he would self-destruct because that's not who he is. That's not his nature. God is truth. It's not just that his word is the truth. He is truth. He cannot lie. And just as much so, he is justice. He has said, if this is the sin, this is the consequence. But I think we got it pretty good because all we have to do is confess it and say, God, I'm sorry. And he's like, oh, okay. Pretty easy, huh? That's not a hard taskmaster. He must punish the guilty. See, the bad news is that we are all affected by our parents and our forefathers' sin. We have to accept that. The good news is that God has provided the way for our freedom 
from all the effects of the sins and the iniquities. Since the time that God instituted his requirements for sacrificial system, he has provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. And God's plan culminated in, in Jesus, as in the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's why I wanted Kyle to share a little bit about his vision, because that is so dead on. That was you and I in that mob. That was you and I crucifying him. Why? Because it had to be that way. We are guilty. We were guilty, and it had to be that way. And after getting an understanding of how curses work through things that our forefathers do and for things that our forefathers say, I really cringe when I read that scripture talking about when Jesus was up before Pilate and the, and the Jewish mob had come in and the Sanhedrin had, had coaxed them all to say, let his blood be upon us and our children. Hmm. What a curse. What a curse. Man must confess his sin and turn from it. When the father has sinned, that sin is in need of being confessed, if not by him, then by his children. To some, that may be a strange concept, but it's very biblical. I'm not saying you have to take total responsibility for the sins of your forefathers, but wasn't it, uh, wasn't it Daniel that stood in the gap and prayed and said, Father, we have sinned. And he was talking about his generation and the generations before him. And he had not himself sinned. He was a righteous man. But he stood in the gap. That sin, whether it be two generations ago, four generations ago, whenever it was, that sin is outstanding. It's hanging out there and it's impacting all the descendants. And until it is addressed through confession... And repentance, it will not be cleared away. It will still be active to work. Through confession and repentance, God clears it away. 1 John 3, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that's very interesting how that was worded. I never really thought about it in these terms when I was thinking about generations, but He said He forgives us of our sins. You can confess the sins of your forefathers. We're not saying that you're, you're praying them into heaven or anything like that, but there's an operation in your life that needs to be broken, and when you confess it, that power is gone. Turn to Leviticus 26, verse 40. Twenty-six forty. More interesting wording in this passage. It says, starting in verse 40, it says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, in other words, if they confess their tendency to rebel and their father's tendency to rebel, they didn't, it doesn't even say necessarily outright their sin. He said even their iniquities. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt 
Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. Once again, he didn't just say my covenant with Abraham. He talked generations there to him. You see that? Note that the passage does not require us to take responsibility for our father's iniquity, but to acknowledge it and confess it. It does not require us, it does require us to take responsibility for our own iniquity and repent and be humble. So we're not taking necessarily the responsibility of what dad or granddad did, but we're confessing it. We are, on the other hand, we are taking responsibility for what we have done because that's the right thing to do. This is when God promises to remember His covenant and fulfill His promises to us when we take these steps. As I said before, we have to appropriate the cross. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, you know, it's all been done on the cross, absolutely. Because when Jesus said it, it is finished, it was done. It was as good as done because He did a complete and total work. But the work of Christ on the cross has no power until it's applied to your life. Think about it. We have a vast array of people in here with very differing backgrounds. Some of us may have come to the Lord very young in life, some later in life. You know, the truth that Jesus died for your sins was not truth when you decided to accept Jesus. It was truth before that, but it had no power in your life until you said, Jesus, I accept you. Didn't mean it just became truth. It just became knowledge to you, a truth to your inner being, to your heart. Turn with me to Galatians 3. As powerful as the cross is, there's no power in it until you appropriate it to your life. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. How are we doing? Is this making sense? Is we, are we doing okay? All right. But it's kind of quiet tonight, so I'm just kind of like, either you're taking it all in or you're about to go to sleep. I'm trying to figure out <laughs> which it is. I hope you're taking it all in. Galatians 3, starting in verse 10, Paul writes, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does, does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Keep that in mind. Don't turn to this next one, but just as we've read that, the promise is further amplified when they talk about it in Colossians. Just note this. This is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Go ahead and flip over one more scripture, 1 Peter 1. Peter showed us, um, he was talking about this. This was our opening verse, but I want to touch on it again. Turn back to it. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 
Because with having read all this, touching on this, Peter shows us the way out and explicitly tries, uh, ties redemption through the blood of Christ to the feudal lifestyle inherited from our fathers. If you remember back um, in 1 Peter, um, actually it's 13 and 14, verse 13 and 14, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting in the decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we see Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which were hostile to us. Because Jesus is the answer to God's requirements and our inability to meet them. We cannot meet these requirements. We can't do it. The children of Israel couldn't do it through the law. We can't do it through the law. There's no way we can do it. Our disobedience in breaking the law results in curses coming upon us. But God himself, in the likeness of man, redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus is our substitute if we'll appropriate his work by faith. What we're going to do tonight is appropriate the breaking of the curses, just as we appropriated Jesus when we accepted him as our Savior. It's by faith. He provides the legal answer to God's judgment and to the curses which Satan wants to impose upon us. So tonight, having said all that, I want to minister on the level of generational curses, what has come down the family line. I want everybody to close your Bibles. I want you to put everything to the side. Just kind of want you to get in that quiet place before God, kind of in a prayerful attitude, prayerful mode. I want everybody to close their eyes. And each one of us here, I want you to start thinking about your life and where you see maybe possible curses in operation. See, there's no way we can really look at each one in this type of setting with this many people. There's no way we can go through and look at everything that you think is a curse or that is a curse operating in your life. But what I want you to do is I want you to look at one or two curses that seem to be the most prevalent, the things you're dealing with most heavily in your life. Maybe it's job losses. You know, that could be a curse that's operating in your life. Maybe it's something much more serious like cancer or some, some ailment, some disease. It could be even more serious. I counseled this, this uh, individual one time who asked me, he said, you know, every generation of my family, the first male in that generation dies in their infancy. You think that's a curse? I said, absolutely. Maybe it's sexual abuse. I don't know what it is. It's going to be different for everyone probably. But I want you to focus in. What is that thing that you see that goes from family generation to generation? Is it poverty? Begin to focus in on it. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I want each one of you to repeat it silently in your hearts. I want you to do it with meaning. And then I'm going to lead you through some ministry steps in dealing with these issues that you're seeing, these curses that you find that you have identified in your life. So just take another moment here. See what it is God's showing you. Because whatever God's showing you right now, that's what He wants to deal with. That's what He wants to heal you of. Or at least help you get to those steps where healing is going to come in. Because, see, the things that you're experiencing in your life right now are just the fruit of it.
And as we have a saying in counseling, where there's a fruit, there's a root, we want to go to the root of the issue. We don't want to just be plucking fruit that comes back. So I want you to say this. Just You don't have to say it out loud, just in your heart. I want you to pray these words after I read them. And I want you to mean it, because God's going to do a work in you. I just want you to silently say, As a child of God, purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I choose to confess and acknowledge the sin of my ancestors. While I don't like the results of their sin in my life, I choose to forgive and release them and to not hold them accountable for each and every way that their sin has affected me. I now renounce all the sins of my ancestors. I release myself from their effects based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Lord, I am sorry for all the ways that I have entered into these same sins and allowed the curses to affect me. I ask you to forgive me for this and to wash me clean. I choose to receive your forgiveness. I affirm that I have been crucified with Jesus Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. On this basis, I announce to Satan and all his forces that Christ took upon himself the curses and the judgments due me. Thus I break every curse that has come upon me because of my ancestors. I also break all curses that have been released unto me by others. I also break all curses that I have spoken or thought about myself. I receive my freedom from every one of these curses. Because of the above, and because I have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son, I cancel the legal rights of every demon sent to oppress me. Because I have been raised up with Christ and now sit with Him in heavenly places, where I have a place as a member of God's family, I renounce and cancel each and every way that Satan and his demons may claim ownership of me. I cancel all dedications made by my ancestors of their descendants, including me and my descendants, in the name of Jesus. I declare myself to be completely and eternally signed over to, owned by, and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. I want you to continue to repeat this silently. And when I tell you to fill in this blank, I want you to fill it in what God is showing you, what curse He's shown you as in operation in your life. So say this silently in your heart. I confess the sin of my ancestors, my parents, and my own sin of fill in the blank.
pray this in your heart. I choose to forgive and release them for the sin, the curses, and the consequences in my life. Lord, I ask you to forgive me for this sin, for yielding to it, and to the resulting curses. I receive your forgiveness, Father. And on the basis of your forgiveness, Lord, I choose to forgive myself for involvement in this sin. I renounce the sin and the curses of fill in the blank. I break this power from my life and from the lives of my descendants through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. I receive God's freedom from this sin and from the resulting curses. I receive your love, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing from sins. And we thank you for the power of the cross as we appropriate it and apply it to our lives. And that we have broken the power of the enemy as we have seen the operation of certain curses in our lives. And we refuse Satan any right to carry out any more curses, Lord, in, this, in these areas. Thank you, Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for investing in your servants the authority to release your forgiveness of sin according to John 20, 23. So, Father, I release forgiveness to all these that are sitting here tonight in cleansing from all unrighteousness. I appropriate the power of the cross of the shed blood of Jesus to stop all judgments and curses affecting them and their family line. And I bind you, Satan, you and your army, and I refuse you any right to carry out any curses against these people. I break the sowing and reaping cycle that was set up by the ancestral sins and curses, and I speak destruction to the seeds that were sown on the authority of the name of Jesus and his finished work on the cross. I declare that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you, so that by faith you might receive the promises of God. I declare that this is fully received into your lives now. Lord, your word says whom you set free is free indeed. And I just thank you, Lord, that each and every person here tonight has gained a new level of freedom. Lord, I also thank you that each one sitting here is in a new family where there are no sins of the Father and thus no resulting curses because you are perfect in every way. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Destiny Spirit Church or additional teaching CDs or training events, please visit our website at www.destinyspirit.com or you can write to us at Destiny Spirit Church P.O. Box 15858, Chesapeake, Virginia 23328. Thank you.